<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win this. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we either feature a new release and delve into our weekend entertainment, focus in on a performer's career, or buy an extra large popcorn and do a double feature. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And let me tell you, if you're not a Patreon member already, you need to head over to patreon.com slash talkmovietome because you do not want to miss next week's Patreon episode where we are discussing this year's Razzie Awards. That's right, the worst in cinema over the past year. We also confront the Armageddon that has begun Bruce Willis's career and have a fun segment where we inflict torture on each other by forcing us to watch a bad movie we will surely hate. Stick around to the end of this episode to find out more about that. And as we do each week, we want to dedicate this episode of Talk Movie to Me to one of our highly valued patrons. These are the people that have subscribed to our podcast on Patreon and gain access to exclusive episodes and content from previous seasons. This week, we want to shout out Stefania. Thank you so much for your support. Tuesday, March 8th. The city streets are starting to fill again. Toronto had its one warm day in March. That day that fools us all into thinking that winter has finished. But it has not. The cold remains. And just like the rats who seek shelter in the dark corners of the city basements, so too do the city's criminals. The rats of a different order. They have plagued this city for too long. But I am here. They look to the shadows and think they see me. And they know fear, for I am the shadows. I am vengeance. I am the Batman. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. How does that make your throat feel? (laughs) Uh, Quite nice, actually. Give me a lozenge. (laughs) This week's film is the latest iteration of Gotham City's ultimate detective, The Batman. Here directed by Matt Reeves and starring Robert Pattinson as the caped crusader, alongside Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman, Jeffrey Wright as Lieutenant Jim Gordon, Andy Serkis as Alfred, Paul Dano as the Riddler, and Colin Farrell as Penguin. One of the most enduring characters in American pop culture, this is in fact the 13th live-action Batman film, if you count the recent Ben Affleck ones. Mm. Here, the story takes place in Gotham City, a city plagued by crime and corruption, where it's rainier than Vancouver and sees less daylight than Siberian winter. Bruce Wayne has only been moonlighting as the Batman for two years, and he hasn't yet won over many fans or trust from the people of the city. He does have an ally in Lieutenant Jim Gordon, who appreciates and makes use of Batman's extraordinary detective skills, which will be required now that a masked killer has started targeting some of the most powerful people in Gotham, brutally killing them and leaving behind riddles and clues as to his next victims and also his motivation. He is the Riddler. 
and his mission is to expose the secrets of corrupt liars who populate Gotham City Halls, police headquarters, and other institutions. Well, expose and murder. <laughs> the Batman faces his most daunting mystery yet as he must navigate the dark underbelly of Gotham in a race against time to stop the Riddler before all hell breaks loose. The Batman asks the question, in a world where corruption seems to rot the very foundations of the institutions on which our society is built, can one person really create change, or does the whole system need to be destroyed in order to be rebuilt into something better? First impression, mm-hmm. Helen. Yeah, so went and saw this opening weekend in the theaters. All capacity limit restrictions have been lifted. Don't need to show vaccines anymore. Mm-hmm. So the theater was pretty much packed. Yeah. I have not been in a packed theater in I can't even tell you the last time. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting experience. Um, and then as this movie begins, it's incredibly dark, both visually and tonally. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm in for. Yeah. <laughs> to Claire? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I decided I was going to go into this with an open mind. And I love it. She starts every episode with that. I'm yeah. going to go with an I, open mind. I'm going to have an open and mind. And then I'm going to shit all over it in the podcast. <laughs> well, I'm saying that because I've been pretty vocal on this podcast about how exhausted I am with mm. Marvel movies and, mm-hmm. and some DC stuff too. Aquaman, Justice League, all of that. And I'm just exhausted with superhero movies. But generally, I don't get sick of Batman movies. Mm. I will say that. I really enjoy Batman. Not a f- huge fan of the Zack Snyder stuff with Ben Affleck. But I I love the original Batman from 1966. And if anybody hasn't seen that, that is a wild romp <laughs> of ridiculousness. And you Pow! Should, yeah, you should watch it right away. <laughs> Just turn off this podcast and, and watch that one. Don't and do that. Don't no. do that. Though. Wait till after. But also just a huge fan of the Tim Burton movies as well. And I really like Batman. So I wasn't feeling like I didn't want to see mm. this right. one. So when this started, it was gothy. It was grungy. Mm. There's a voiceover that begins that is very film noir and the world of Gotham, it's it's so dark and gritty and it's visually interesting. And, you know, it starts with this energy of a hardened detective murder mm. mystery. It felt very Seven, mm. like David Fincher's Seven. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't deny that this was my vibe as mm. soon as it started. It, was, yeah. it just felt like it was made for me in a lot of ways. Mm. Very <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely love the way this movie opens. Because it starts with us seeing through the lens of some binoculars, right? As this wealthy Mm. family is sort of being spied on in their huge apartment. It's this like rear window callback Mm. and we're being voyeurs. And I instinctively thought, oh, I'm seeing this through Batman's eyes. You know, this guy he's watching must be a criminal. And then the line of sight through the lens tracks up the front of the building to the roof where we see this huge skylight leading down into the home. And you think, okay, Batman's headed in this way. Then a minute or so later, when we see the villain standing behind the man in the home under the skylight, only then do you realize that actually we were seeing the opening through not Batman's eyes, but through the eyes of this psycho killer. Mm -hmm. And then that whole murder sequence, I found fucking terrifying. And so I was just so hooked, instantly hooked from the beginning of this film. Mm -hmm. 
really exciting way to open. I it thought. also has a quiet opening mm-hmm. as well. It's not a very loud opening, mm-hmm. which surprised me a bit because with these, you know, superhero films, it has a big energy beginning. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It really set the tone for the film. Yeah. Okay. So why don't we jump into storytelling? Yeah. Well, this is a, I would say we're going back to our Christopher Nolan Batman phase where it is darker. To be fair, I have not seen any of the Zack Snyder movies. I did not see Ben Affleck as Batman. I have no idea what that's like. I've heard it's terrible. It's definitely um, not going to be your cup of tea. No, but we're going back to what I understand to be the darker phase in comparison. Uh, which I'm into. I liked the Dark Knight movies. I liked Christopher Nolan's mm-hmm. Batman. So I wasn't not on board for this. This is this plays a lot like a detective thriller. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Do you feel like it was successful at that? So I was very much looking forward to this movie. Mm-hmm. I do love all of the superhero films. This film very nearly made the top my top five list of mm-hmm. like most anticipated of the year. Mm-hmm. I honestly only really kept it out because they couldn't just all be superhero movies yeah. and the one <laughs> Whitney movie. Um, yeah. And like Matt Reeves is a great director. I loved Cloverfield, loved Let Me In, loved the two Planet of the Apes movies he did. Mm-hmm. So he hasn't made a bad like movie yet. Uh, so I felt pretty confident going into this that I would enjoy it. But I was like, okay, we've seen Batman Mm. so many different iterations of Batman. Like how is it going to tell us a new story? How is it going to show us a new iteration of Batman? And in that, I do think that they succeeded. Yeah. This was really refreshing because it had that detective energy to it. Mm -hmm. And Batman is supposed to be the world's greatest detective. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. (laughs) Well, that's because it hasn't been really present in a Mm. lot of the other Batman movies. So that's what I think made this new and Mm. interesting and compelling because exactly that. Like, what are we going to do with it at this point? Mm -hmm. And... The voiceover at the beginning of the film, the hardened detective, the corrupt city. There's even a dame to kill for. Oh, yeah. In this <laughs> as well with Selena Kyle. So it, it's very much film noir throwback and it is very much influenced by Chinatown. Mm. Yes. It also <laughs> had a lot of like Frank Miller's Sin City in this as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's this neo-noir energy to it. And that actually <laughs> allows for this film to let you sit there and forget that this is a superhero movie. It was very much a detective who just, ha- for some reason, just happens to wear a bat suit. <laughs> that's, that's what it felt like to me. There is a level of cynicism that comes along with noir crime films, and this had a lot of cynicism to it. There is a surveillance theme in this film that feels very much like The Conversation the movie from the 70s. And it doesn't feel modern in the sense that there's a lot of cell phones in it. It feels very mm. gadgety mm-hmm. and also very like tapped. Analog, yeah. Analog and tapped phones. And, and there's a feeling of being modern but old at the same time. Mm. And I yeah, think that that is because of these old noir influences on this film. And that just carries out the through the whole film. And I just think it really worked. Yeah. It also just felt very police procedural as well. Mm-hmm. Like it felt very seven. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, so for me, the detective thriller angle 
I find interesting and that is definitely going to be more intriguing to me than just a straight superhero movie because we all know this is not my jam. Mm -hmm. But I didn't actually find the mystery of this to be intriguing and something that works for me in those types of films, detective movies, is trying to figure out the mystery alongside the protagonist, Mm -hmm. which this... I didn't feel like we had that feeling. Yeah. You know, there's all these riddles that Batman knows the answer for instantaneously. Mm-hmm. Like, there isn't room for the audience to try to figure out. Well, and we also know it's the Riddler. Exactly. Like, we already are so familiar with these Batman the villains, villains yeah. that we know it's the Riddler. And even though Batman is just meeting the Riddler for yeah. the first time, it can't be anyone other than the Riddler. Right. Totally. <laughs> like, we just know. Yeah, so that isn't... There isn't really any yeah. big surprise there, which... Yeah. To me, I that was lacking. Yeah, it takes some of the joy out of that yeah. experience on your side as an audience. I, I get that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is really cool, and like you touched on there, is this idea that this is the Batman's first time meeting the Riddler. And mm. I love that. You know, he says at the very beginning, he's only been Batman for two years. Mm. This is a young Batman, a mm-hmm. young Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. And I'm really thankful that they didn't do like the origin story that we've seen a million yeah. times already. I saw that freaking <laughs> Parents alley, getting shot in an alley shot, one more yeah. time. falling to the ground. I would have lost my shit, Same. honestly. Yeah. I was like, please do not do a flashback. We don't need yeah. it. The entire world knows Batman yeah. and yeah. knows the Batman story. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need it. I'm so thankful they didn't do that. Yeah. I love that instead this was more like a coming of age movie. Mm. Yeah. And so the way that Batman is shown in this is less about like the future, like the technology and the cool gadgets and all of that and his money being able to purchase all of that fancy equipment. And it's more about like building up our understanding of the person himself mm-hmm. and the way that Bruce Wayne understands the character of Batman mm. and what his impact is, right? It's about the intention behind how Bruce Wayne walks. And like the intentionally like thud, thud, thud of it to elicit this reaction, right? The quiet in the shadows. He is fear. He's vengeance. He doesn't speak. He has like 10 lines in this whole friggin' movie. I swear to God. (laughs) He's like constantly observing and understanding that silence. And I think that that's about Batman finding his voice, right? Mm. It's about who is this character and Batman just trying to still figure out how to navigate Gotham Mm -hmm. and how to figure out his own place within it. And I actually thought that that was a really interesting character arc for Batman that we haven't seen in the other films, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is one that's really fully fleshed out and gets a proper resolution in the end where we see him start to redefine his purpose. Yeah. And it's also a completely refreshing take on Bruce Wayne as well. Like this Bruce Wayne is not very social. He's not this womanizer. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who's completely isolated, very recluse and unsure of himself in a lot of ways. And I I liked how in this film, when he fell, he was pretty hurt. Like he wasn't perfect Mm. in his fighting. He wasn't perfect. Like he wasn't fully actualized yet. Yeah. All of these things for me, I think would have worked and I would have enjoyed them if this movie was a third shorter we have not talked about the runtime yet this movie's three hours long yeah i think three hour movies should be illegal minus (laughs) minus titanic right like where this movie really lost me was in the length 
and that I didn't quite feel like it had enough to say to justify that length. That's the thing with these world building movies because you you know that they're going to want to do a second one and they're yeah. going to want to do a third one yeah. and they're establishing these characters that we already know but at the same time they're new in right. this world and in this franchise mm-hmm. so there's so much world building going on I am getting pretty disheartened actually with three hour movies as well because <laughs> I feel like the world is wants people to go to the movies now and I feel like these three hour run times are just making people say I need to watch these movies from the comfort of my own home. right I went to see this at the luxury recliner mm. theater like I needed to recline yeah, yeah. For, that, that was the only way I felt like I could do this was yeah. if I could be in a leather recliner but the thing is is that it's actually not true like well that's true you and your recliner no doubt <laughs> yeah, that is but true. um but what I mean is I think we're having this shift to the only films that are being big at cinema being these giant epics, right? The newest Spider-Man film was also very long. Dune was very long. These are the biggest Mm -hmm. films of the past year, right? In terms of box office, in terms of actually pulling people to the theater, because it feels like a whole epic experience that you're dedicating your whole evening to. Yeah. I mean, in terms of this film, I didn't find that they were like lollygagging with the time. Like I felt like they used the time to establish everything properly. I didn't feel like it lagged necessarily. I do wish that it was shorter, but at the same time, I didn't feel like it got repetitive. Like I don't feel like this. I was seeing the same scenes over and over again mm-hmm. or the same interactions over and over again. So I feel like it used the time. I love a long film. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. And I was happy to be in this world. And for the most part, I felt that the pacing was pretty good in this. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there was one chunk, like about two thirds of the way through, where it just felt like four scenes of just nothing but exposition Mm. right in a row. And it lasted for like 15 minutes or so, Mm -hmm. or 20 minutes maybe, where I was like, okay, that was really long. I found that little one chunk a bit arduous. Otherwise... I didn't really mind mind the length at all. But I can yeah. understand why maybe well, one other people I are. can tell if I'm invested in a movie, if I'm like really trying to choose when to go to the bathroom. And I definitely <laughs> needed to go to the bathroom about mm-hmm. an hour and a half into this movie. Mm-hmm. And it was right at the part where we we're going to find out some backstory about the orphanage that okay. the Riddler yeah. was at. And I just couldn't hold it. And I'm like, well, this has to be it. Like, I'm pretty sure they're going to find something that shows the Riddler as a child or something. Maybe I can predict this. And and then I went to the bathroom at that time. But that's how I can tell when I'm invested in something where I don't want to get up to the bathroom. Right, yeah. Oh, I was I was very much happy to go to the bathroom <laughs> and was also very disappointed when I realized it had only been two hours. Yeah. I still had a whole other hour left. I'm like, yeah. what? How? What's going to happen for another hour? Yeah. Are we is it going to stop raining ever? No, it's going to rain the whole time. Lots of rain. <laughs> well, OK, so I wanted to talk about the grunge influence in this film. Mm, yes, mm. that is very much my jam. Obviously, this had um, some Nirvana going on, something in the way, which it was a very prominent in the trailer. It was mm-hmm. also pretty prominent in this movie as mm-hmm. well. But it definitely encapsulates the tone that this film is going for. And grunge music, it's so angsty and it just fit with this Bruce Wayne. And it's very emotional. And in terms of 
you know, story with with grunge songs, they very much represent social alienation, psychological trauma, self-doubt, anxieties, and picking Nirvana something in the way I just felt was very appropriate for the themes in this film. Mm -hmm. But one thing I thought was really interesting was that this song, Something in the Way, was on Nirvana's Nevermind album, Mm -hmm. and Kurt Cobain wrote this song when he was homeless and he was sleeping under a bridge. So that's like the lore Mm. behind this song. And, you know, it came out that he also slept at friends' houses and sometimes he slept in a cardboard box and there's all this, you know, lore around this song. But the song is very much about isolation and not belonging and not having a solid home. And that is very much the life of the Mm. Riddler in this film and also... Bruce Wayne in a lot right. of ways. Yeah. I really like that. And Matt Reeves was very influenced by Nirvana and by the film Last Days by Gus Van Sant, which is mm. an interpretation mm-hmm. of the last days of Kurt Cobain's life. And he's very isolated in this de- decaying mansion. And I also love that because in this film, hmm. Wayne Manor is so gothic. It's yeah. decaying. Oh, hell yeah. And it's incredibly isolated. So I just, I, I liked the, the tie-ins with that. It was very much uh, considered. It was all very considered when choosing a song to represent mm. the film. Mm-hmm. I felt like every single detail in this film was really considered, though. Even just as simple as the eye makeup. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, actually, that being a thing, right? I don't know that we've ever really seen that on on Batman before. As part of the process. Like, it seemed more like a process. He obviously was in great shape, but it wasn't like he was this muscle-bound, sort of wrestler-looking character. He was just, like, really kind of... This was your skinny goth Batman. Yes. Yeah. I was (laughs) all for it. Of course you were. Battinson. Yes. All for Battinson. (laughs) Battinson, exactly. Robert Battinson. I can't. And I really like, too, what you said. Like, they're, they're definitely drawing this sort of contrast but also comparison between the Riddler and Batman it's like they're Mm -hmm. two sides of the same coin and basically they were both orphans but Bruce Wayne was an orphan who grew up you know as a billionaire right Mm -hmm. and so his experience of the world is so totally different than this other orphan Mm -hmm. who grew up you know penniless and abused in in the Mm -hmm. system a, a child of the system and how the influence of that has manifest their perspectives of the world and the Riddler, I thought when I, when this film ended, I was like, "This is crazy," because they had like this was certainly written before the January sixth like storming of the Capitol in mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. But there's so much of who the Riddler becomes and that online persona and the messages and stuff on it and the attacking of City Hall here that was basically very very reminiscent of that moment. Yeah, and also all of the like incel of it all. Yeah. And, it was just really a strong commentary, I think, on on a lot of the shit that we're seeing right now in society. Yeah, so I think that one way that they did make the Riddler exciting, even though we, you know, we're familiar with it's going the mystery, it's going to be the Riddler, was actually not showing Paul Dano for a long time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there was an anticipation of okay, I know it's the Riddler, but how is he going to appear? When are we going to see it? Right. And there's a lot of cool things that you can interpret with him. And one of them was, I was wondering if he was almost like a Charles Manson type where he wasn't even committing these murders. It was his minions that were doing it. Oh, that's Because he even says to Batman, he's like, I needed you to bring the rat to the light. Mm -hmm. I 
Io can only use my mind. Like mm-hmm. I, he, he, he I don't have the strength. He doesn't have the yeah. physical mm-hmm. strength. So mm-hmm. it makes you go, okay, so this whole time have other people been doing the crimes while he's just been orchestrating it? And for him to just have this kind of like military, like army surplus. Right outfit I thought was really scary because he basically was controlling a group of people also making it really easy for them to mimic him just going out to the army surplus store Mm -hmm. and getting them to do this stuff like so he was making himself like easily copycatted yeah essentially so there were certain aspects that I found added to the suspense of it being the Riddler right I did find that aspect of his plot, like that he is on this, you know, underground network, this private network chat room, and is calling on these people to commit the, you know, the final act of the film. I liked that. I thought that was a really cool commentary. It almost felt a little too real, though. Yeah, no, seriously. Which, which was hard to watch. Whereas in other Batman movies, like when we have the Joker with the the fairies. Um, mm. And he's going to blow up one of the fairies, one has prisoners, one has civilians. I'm like, okay, that feels a bit bigger, a bit more far-fetched than real life. Whereas what this about movie... Arnold Schwarzenegger as <laughs> Mr. Freeze? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah there's like a realism. <laughs> it was just, yeah. it was almost a little too real. Yeah. I was like, yeah. oh, this is icky. It was like when Bane is blowing up the football field. Yeah. That I found right. to be like quite disturbing. Yeah. There's like a realism to the Nolan ones yeah. and to, to this one that that do make it a lot more unnerving. Mm-hmm. But I think that has always been the appeal of Batman, mm-hmm. right? The, he's not Thor. You know, he's not right. the god of thunder from yeah. Asgard. You know, he's a detective in a city that, in a corrupt city run by criminals. I never knew Batman was a detective. World's greatest First detective. First time I'm hearing of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Alan. one of his, his nicknames. Like yeah. Cape Crusader, Dark Knight, world's greatest detective. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And... I think like going back to the comics, I think that this really stays true to the comics and to that comic character, at least a couple of like really popular kind of iterations of it, right? So I have always been more into Marvel comics, Mm X-Men and all of that, right? So I'm not the diehard Batman fan. I don't know the canon, Mm -hmm. but this is definitely pulling from a couple of pieces specifically, one being Batman Year One, which is a comic series, and also Batman The Long Halloween, which Mm -hmm. is an extremely popular comic series as well about the serial killer and um matt reeves said oh on a comic front i did a deep dive and i read mm-hmm. so many of them i mean there are a few that really inspired it tonally batman year one there was something in that that was grounded and felt cinematic that reminded me of an american 70s movie or something oh, that's which cool. is just so true and we can see that in this Right, that gritty realism. That was what that was in American 70s, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing about the Batman movies is some have become very iconic and others haven't Mm. as much. And when you think about Tim Burton's Batman, you think about Jack Nicholson as the Joker and then you have Batman Returns with Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman and Danny DeVito as Penguin and even The Dark Knight. Like, mm-hmm. I remember when I watched the trailer for The Dark Knight and the first time I saw the Joker sitting mm-hmm. in the jail cell, like I felt shivers yeah. Yeah. go down my arms. And then after seeing the movie, I was like, that is something that is just going to remain 
in in film history mm-hmm. as something Forever. very iconic. And mm-hmm. like you can sometimes you can just feel when something is iconic when you're watching it. Yes. Like this is going to be forever revered. And with this film, this film to me was like a good Batman film, but I didn't have that feeling after I left where I was like this is iconic. Mhm. So I don't know how you felt. Like there weren't there weren't moments in this film that I felt were like ingrained in my memory mm-hmm. after I left. Yeah, me neither. And as much as I am saying, you know, I'm clearly not a comic book person. And so I'm not coming at it from that fan perspective. But I will say that there were things in this movie that do actually make me excited for the rest of this trilogy because mm-hmm. it is meant to be a trilogy. I didn't love this one, but I think I could love the next one mm-hmm. um, because of what it's building up to. Mm-hmm. But no, I didn't find anything in this to be iconic. Whereas uh, Heath Ledger's Joker is incredible. And I mm-hmm. love that movie. I actually agree completely with both of you. I thought that th- this film is one of my favorite of the Batman films. I think for me, the order, I love Batman Returns just because I love the camp extravaganza and I love (laughs) Michelle Pfeiffer. And then I love the Dark Knight because of Heath Ledger Mm -hmm. and because that film is just so unsettling. Mm -hmm. And then I would put this one after that. Mm. I did really love it. But if you think Mm -hmm. about Batman Begins, there's nothing really super iconic from that either. No. Mm. And I agree. It's like, this feels like a really promising setup. I actually really loved Robert Pattinson's take on this and we'll get into that with performance but yeah. I, I like the characters I thought that the penguin was a yeah. really cool character the way that they told that story in this one too mm-hmm. so yeah I I am totally with you on that mm-hmm. okay well why don't we get into performances then yeah let's speaking do it. of Battinson speaking <laughs> of Robert Battinson yeah <laughs> Well, you probably... What did you think of Robert Pattinson, Sinclair? Okay, well, obviously, this Bruce Wayne is my brooding gothy boyfriend. Yeah. Of course. Like, I'm I'm watching this, and I'm like, how great would it be to hang out with brooding Bruce Wayne in his gothic mansion listening to Nirvana? Like, I was all for this Bruce Wayne. So Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting because there's a lot of chatter about Robert Pattinson being a pretty good Batman, but Mm -hmm. not a very good Bruce Wayne. Mm -hmm. And there actually isn't a lot of Bruce Wayne in this film, Mm -mm. which... I definitely thought of when I watched it. I was like, he's not really Bruce Wayne a lot in this. But at the same time, this is a completely different take Mm -hmm. on what we know to be Bruce Wayne. So is he a good Bruce Wayne? Well, maybe in this world he is. Right. You know, so yeah, he's very much caught up in his pain and his vengeance. And, you know, like he says in the film, the work that he's doing now after the death of his parents is his family's legacy Mm -hmm. instead of carrying on this, you know, quote unquote legacy Mm -hmm. of wealth and partying and being a social philanthropist. His, his work on the legacy is, is something different than what we are expecting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I absolutely loved him in this and I loved his Bruce Wayne. Yeah. He doesn't have a lot of Bruce Wayne, but I thought that it was perfect. I actually cared about that character. Yeah. That's something different, right? Mm. He didn't seem already so firmly grounded and established in his own identity. He was still seeking out 
his own idea of who he is and what he's supposed to be doing in his life and what his purpose is and how is he going to fulfill that. And it didn't feel like a sort of foregone conclusion that he would already end up like this, you know, suave and controlled Bruce Wayne that we saw like the Michael Keaton one or whatever. Right. And I loved that. I really believed him that scene when he's Bruce Wayne and he goes to the funeral and he's just like totally isolated, this quiet observer watching around filled with dread and angst. And you're like, yeah, that dude is real. That is Bruce Wayne. He's been mm, isolated yeah. for ages. I thought it was really, really good. And I thought Robert, Robert Pattinson <laughs> was like excellent in this. Really excellent. And not to no surprise because he's just been killing it for like years now. I also just was laughing when he had his brooding sunglasses on and then oh, the God, hair yeah. hanging in his face. It was perfect for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, this is not my favorite Robert Pattinson performance. I love Robert Pattinson yeah. and I don't think he was bad in this but and maybe it is because we didn't see a lot of the Bruce Wayne version I didn't feel like I got enough of Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. or just a duality yeah yeah exactly like he felt there's a huge duality between Batman and Bruce Wayne generally right they're, they're completely different people. and in this he was just so stoic yeah. and you know by the end of it I thought like I have not seen him smile one time no, one time. Right. I haven't seen his teeth. <laughs> yeah. Like, not that that needs to be there, but I wanted a little bit more range, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But as I've already said, I feel like it's something that could come in the next two movies that I'm looking forward yeah, to. I <laughs> yeah, I get that. Okay. And what about the, because there were a lot of performances in this, yeah. right? What about Selena Kyle, played mm-hmm. by Zoe Kravitz? That was my favorite part of this movie. Mm. Uh, Zoe Kravitz's performance, Catwoman in this movie, I wish she was in it more. Mm. Um, Those scenes I was totally captivated by. She was giving me Natalie Portman and Closer vibes Mm. with those wigs. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And I liked watching her move. Oh, yeah. And that character just felt like it had a lot of spice to it. Yeah. And I was very intrigued by that performance and that character. Mm Mm-hmm. I also loved her. I thought, yeah. first of all, she's almost incomprehensibly beautiful. I know. Mm-hmm. Like, and the camera really knows it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like the way that she was lit, it was this whole film is so dark, but right. there was be enough light just on the right angles on her face. Like, it's I was just like, holy fuck! How does somebody actually look like that? Where does this face come from? Lenny Kravitz and Lisa Bonet. Yeah, like, exactly. how could you they take produce two. someone yeah, you're ugly? Right. <laughs> you're so right. Like she's gonna be some troll. <laughs> Like she won the genetic lottery. That's how it happened. Yeah, so right. But I agree. Like I thought it was a really cool performance. I actually believed the way that she strutted Mm. and also her as the bartender. Like when she would walking through the Mm, club and when she was kind of flirting with the patrons there, I just thought it was a really great performance. She didn't have a ton of screen time, but she definitely made the most of what she had. And yeah, yeah, I thought she was great. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's really great in this. And she really fits the Selena Kyle of this film. Like she fits the style of this film. I think that we're used to seeing more like animal embodiment in Mm. these villains. Mm. Like you're expecting more cat physicality. But there was a realism to this film that I feel like this works. Because with the Tim Burton version... The villains, they really embody the animal. Michelle Pfeiffer mm. is a cat. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and the Danny penguin DeVito, is literally eating fish and spitting everywhere. Yeah, he is <laughs> He is a penguin, yeah. actually. Right. So 
in this film there there's a realism where you know you have Colin Farrell as the as the penguin but he doesn't have penguin qualities but you can see it yeah, yeah you can yeah, yeah. see who that man is and you can see how it fits and and same thing with her too like they didn't go over the top with a totally like yes yeah <laughs> I loved her nails yeah yeah love those claws yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I also sure. did laugh at her mask, though, that Zoe Kravitz, ha- she has such a beautiful face mm. that they were like, okay, we're going to give her a balaclava and then, <laughs> well, we got to show her face. So they like cut yeah. that one strip I know. down like, the middle of her really face and it's like. <laughs> literally like, any person in the world would recognize her. strip. <laughs> I know. Totally. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I do want to, we definitely have to talk about Colin Farrell yeah. as Penguin. Because, no, let me just say. Okay, if I didn't know, I never would have known. Me neither. I forgot who it was. And the whole time I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm like, who is it again? I can't remember. I couldn't figure it out. He's... I thought he was fucking awesome. So did I. I yeah. loved it. <laughs> well, he's gone. He's completely gone. Completely yeah. gone. That yeah. is not his voice. Like, I couldn't no. even see it in his eyes. I know. I'm like, whose eyes are those? <laughs> you know when you watched... Um, Jared Leto? Jared Leto and House right. of Gucci. It's like, yeah, so it doesn't look like him, but like, you can see his eyes. Totally. Like, you see it's those piercing Jared Leto eyes. Yeah. Where with Colin Farrell, like, he was just gone. Totally gone. And this was a real character. Uh, that I mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. was a real gangster, and yeah. actually had a lot of really great moments. Like mm-hmm. he was fun, and mm-hmm. and had a little bit of humor, and also felt threatening. And the fucking car chase scene, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get to in technical, <laughs> um, but he was a riot in that. Yeah, like I thought he was so good, yeah. so good. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he was definitely a highlight for me. And I actually do want to watch this again to see that performance again. So good. The moment where they leave him tied up and then he actually does get a little waddle like a penguin. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. John Turturro, I always find, like, I hate seeing him as a villain because mm. I actually like him so much. Mm-hmm. I find him so likable. I know. And so endearing that it's very hard for me to see him as a bad guy. Even though he's a wonderful actor, I just, I never like to see him as a villain. <laughs> but see, that works as Carmine Falcone yeah. here, right? Because he has to have that charming, likable quality. That's the type of slick mob boss that he is. Yeah. Right? And I liked him. I thought he worked great here, too. He's such a great actor, but I thought mm-hmm. that he fit yeah, that he role. Yeah. Um, okay, so Paul Dano. Paul Dano. Yeah. Um, okay, I love me some deranged Paul Dano. This felt a little too much like Prisoner slash uh, There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Like a little bit too much. I've seen this before. I've seen you do this before. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was not a miss, but not like a total hit for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I like watching him. I think he's great. I, I thought he was a good Riddler. I feel like he just fits being the Riddler. Mm-hmm. Like, when I heard he was cast in this, I was like, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, that makes sense. Paul right. Dano, the Riddler, that's that's great. Because he has this ability to be very creepy, but also appear very harmless. Yeah. And he gets beat up all the time in all movies that he's in. He's <laughs> yeah. always all getting beat up. He just, just he's beat up beat all the pulp. time. Yeah. And you actually do, because of his film history and the way he is treated in, in mm. film, you do picture him as this guy that would be causing trouble like behind a computer screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like not somebody who's out there physically causing problems, but being manipulative mm-hmm. and using brain over brawn. And, you know, he has a great moment with that creepy, satisfied 
smile mm-hmm. that I think was one of the better memorable moments in the film. Oh, I thought he was awesome. I thought it's it's interesting. Like the mask gives you so much to work with. Mm-hmm. And his mask was very comprehensive except for his eyes, which were also covered in glasses and thus another kind of a mask. Mm-hmm. And it just, I think it gives an actor a freedom to just mm-hmm. go to the wall mm-hmm. with it. And I thought that was great. But then even when all that came off and you had that really fantastic kind of interrogation scene with him and Batman when he was behind the glass. That was such a like dance of control in that conversation and like flipping back and forth between who was in power and what they thought who was like leading that. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so brilliant when he had when he flipped and he was like, "No, this is not how I thought this was going to go." Mm-hmm. And he had that full panic moment, yeah. but then how he also won again at the end. Mm-hmm. Like it was a really really captivating. I thought it was yeah. amazing. And his costume was interesting because it mm-hmm. just I find that kind of outfit very terrifying because it I felt like the Riddler mm. was very Zodiac inspired. Yeah, yeah. With, it was with the, the riddles and the yes. clothes mm. and, and that combat outfit. Like that reminded totally. me of David Fincher's Zodiac. Yes. Uh-huh. When he comes up at the beach and he comes up in the at the car mm. and he's in that full black like militant combat outfit. And I think that in this case it made Paul Dano if that, like I said, if that was even mm. him mm-hmm. outside do, outside doing this, like the murders, right? But it makes him feel like look physically more terrifying and true, yes. true. And it's also just so scary because it's just there's just so many angry white men mm-hmm. that that yeah. have that gear yeah. already that look like that. Like it's just too real. It's yeah. just really freaky. Okay, so performances, yeah, the whole thing, pretty much solid, I think, mm-hmm. all around. And technical, okay, let's talk about that. There were a lot of gorgeous shots oh. in this movie. And director of photography is Greg Frazier, who has done Dune. Um, like, what a friggin' year this guy yeah. had. Yeah. Another stunning film with stunning cinematography. And for um, which he's nominated for the Oscar. Right, yes. And will pro- we'll very likely win, or should. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Um, and yeah, there were a lot of gorgeous, gorgeous shots in this movie. That is something I, I will say for sure that I, I could marvel at, like the artistry in the shots and and the lighting. There's one shot where Batman's walking out with and he's silhouetted by fire, like flames <sighs> behind him. That was like a gorgeous, gorgeous shot incredible yeah 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 i really like the look of gotham in Mm. this yeah Mm. very like seedy new york city (laughs) it was yeah seedy new york city but it also was old and Mm. like it was old looking Mm. and a lot of this was shot in the uk because Mm. matt reeves wanted a very old and cold look and he said that there's a decayed gothic layer that we just don't have in the states Mm. so a lot of it was shot in glasgow scotland Mm. uh, liverpool and some of my favorite sets were the ones that they did in in glasgow so the cemetery scene at the end Mm -hmm. um the necropolis cemetery that's in glasgow Mm. and then also, the Gotham Orphanage was Hartwood Psychiatric Hospital, and that was mm. also in Scotland. Oh, cool. That's really interesting. It's so true, yeah. right? This is the power of location. It's not something that you're going to like consciously pick up on when you're watching it, necessarily, mm. but it just creates this whole patina of 
film that is attention to every detail that you it's like when you walk into a really well-designed living space Mm -hmm. and you don't consciously Mm -hmm. recognize all the details that have come together to make you feel super comfortable in that space but someone has done that and the attention to detail makes it and that's this film too totally Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i have to shout out michael giacchino who did the score Mm -hmm. um this is really difficult because yeah. Batman already has so many iconic pieces of music associated with that yeah. character, right? How do you make this one stand out? And I thought he did actually a really fantastic job. Like, is this score as instantly memorable as Batman or that Danny Elfman? No, but it is really beautiful and haunting. Mm -hmm. It's dark, it's strong, it's mysterious. There's this sort of like ticking clock sound in it that I just think is really brilliant. It adds this tension and it's like Batman is always just racing against time to solve the crime or beat the criminal to the punch. And then it crescendos at the end with this like massive horn moment that's so massive Mm -hmm. and I just loved it. It Love was it. it was dread. It was like the mm. feeling of dread. It actually reminded me a lot of Darth Vader's theme. Yes. And honestly, a little bit like The Undertaker from WWE. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like a menacing dread yeah. that's coming in. Darth Vader and Undertaker. Um, I really liked it. I think it really worked. Yeah, I said to, because I saw this with Justin, and I said to him at one point, I was like, it sounds like Return of the Jedi. And he's like, no, it's the... I don't know. The Imperial March. The Imperial March. Yeah. yeah. It sounded like the Imperial March to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, I just think the songs that, you know, were more known, like I mentioned the Nirvana song, they also use Ave Maria a lot. Yes, a lot. Yeah. In this film. And I'm sorry, a choir boy's voice I just find so haunting. <laughs> and it's interesting because it has a childhood innocent sound to it, but the song is also associated with death because mm-hmm. it's played at a lot of funerals. Mm. And there's a point where it's sung by a boys' choir, maybe associated with the Riddler when he was younger. And then also it plays during murder scenes as well. Mm-hmm. Right? So very much innocence and then the death of innocence. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's an interesting choice. And I think just to kind of wrap this bit up, I don't think you can talk about like Batman without talking about the action sequences mm. and stuff. And I thought that they were really well done. I loved that it was close and felt real and gritty. And like you touched on earlier, like when Batman falls down or gets hit, mm-hmm. y- you feel it, mm. right? Yeah, you can he see that he really feels hurt. it <laughs> totally. Yeah. But that car chase scene. I was obsessed with. Yeah, that was actually really great. And I don't care really for car chase scenes. And I actually love that scene. I yeah. thought it was so entertaining. So fucking entertaining. Yeah. And the Batmobile was awesome. It looked actually kind of believable. And like... Looked like a character. Looked like a monster. Yeah. Like coming out of the flames. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. All right. What is the last word on the Batman? Yeah, I mean, this wasn't like my favorite movie however i am excited to see what comes next i am excited to see more robert uh battinson um mm-hmm. and more zoe kravitz yeah. as catwoman for sure let's just make the next movie not three hours please please right. I'm begging you. <laughs> edison yeah. for me i really really enjoyed this film i knew that i would but i'm glad that it didn't disappoint i kind of went in with high expectations and i loved it it was a little long just in that one chunk and near the middle, like I said. Other than that, though, I really was held captive from start to finish. And I thought it was a really 
great take on Batman, the character, mm-hmm. and kind of seeing him figure out who he is and mm-hmm. what role he's meant to actually play mm-hmm. in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, last word for me, the Batman is gothy, it's gloomy, and grunge. And mm-hmm. to me, that's a whole lot of fun. <laughs> it's also sexy. We didn't really talk about mm-hmm. how sexy this mm-hmm. film is with uh, Battinson and Zoe. They are very good together, very good chemistry. And yeah, it's a fun throwback to the noirs of the past. And yeah, it's pretty long. But uh, brooding Bruce Wayne is my new celebrity boyfriend. (laughs) Happy to spend time with him. This episode, we challenge ourselves to watch movies that fit a particular theme, and that theme is Behind the Mask. This is our week in entertainment. Helen, what film did you pick? So, do you know what I picked, Sinclair? Uh, I feel like you would pick, like, Goodnight Mommy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. As soon as I said the year, I was like, she's going to know. How do why I don't know, but you did. Uh, yeah. So yes, I did the 2014 <laughs> Austrian horror film Good Night, Mommy, written and directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. We discussed another one of their films in our season four Halloween special. That was The Lodge. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who would like to hear that discussion, head on over to Patreon to become a member because that is a Patreon only episode. Have you seen Good Night, Mommy? I have not. Excellent. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give it away because it's got a pretty good t- twist mm-hmm. at the end. But uh, here is my description: Lucas and Elias are twin brothers enjoying their summer vacation in their secluded rural home. They anxiously await the return of their mother, who's been away receiving a cosmetic facial procedure. She comes home, face bruised and wrapped in bandages, and she is not the same. Something is wrong with mommy. She wants the curtains drawn at all times and minimal noise, as sleep is of the utmost importance. She has a short temper and is heavily favoring one son over the other. Who is behind this mask of gauze? Lucas and Elias wonder. The boys take it into their own hands to trap this imposter and torture her until she reveals her true identity and tells them where their mother has gone. So I had wanted to see this for a while. I had seen it come up on lots of lists of great horror films. Sinclair, you mentioned it when we did do our Lodge episode. We weren't crazy about the Lodge. However, I did like certain aspects of that. I liked the style that I could see Veronica, France, and Severin Fiala demonstrating there. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was eager to see this. And then I, when I thought of it for the segment, I was like, oh, okay, that'll be perfect. This is a very well-crafted horror movie with a pretty great twist at the end. I'm not going to spoil the twist. This is not something that should be spoiled. So I'll be very careful about how I speak about it. But yeah, without saying too much, this is one of those movies that subverts your expectations and has you as the viewer questioning your allegiance and who you trust in the film. Mm. And I think that that is a challenging thing to do successfully. I think that some movies try to do it and it's not great. And then others, you don't realize it's happening until it happens. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those movies. Um, It also makes you think about your own perspective on things. Mm -hmm. The perspective I had at the start of this movie was incredibly different from the perspective I had at the end. And 
it's one of those ones that you can go back and watch again and view it differently and it works and that is i think crucial to the success of this movie this movie fits into the theme of behind the mask in many ways there's the obvious bandaged face mask which is a really really haunting image Mm -hmm. if you look up this movie and you just see the image of the mom with her bruised eyes and her bandaged face it's scary like she looks like Mm -hmm. a monster and you don't know who's underneath it you don't know if that's the real mother or not you also imagine getting plastic surgery and then (laughs) having those bandages and then like revealing a new face like that experience would be totally scary and i i think that's actually where (laughs) their inspiration came from was just like someone who who gets plastic surgery and comes home and like what do their children think of them now right and then there's a point where the boys are both wearing creepy homemade masks there's also the idea of plastic surgery and you know what does plastic surgery mean are you now wearing a mask if you get plastic surgery Mm. that's not your real face why what is our draw to plastic surgery why Mm. is that something that people want to do and then to get a little deeper into themes there's the question of what is behind the mask of trauma and how does trauma change our lives and our behaviors and our psyches? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot to delve into in this movie. It's really, really well done. And I have to shout out the performances. So Suzanne West plays the mother and she's incredible. And she really does toe the line between creepy imposter slash is this their mother? And then Lucas and Elias are played by Lucas and Elias Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, that is their actual name, those twins that are the uh, leads in this movie highly recommend uh, Goodbye Mommy came out in 2014 very good mm-hmm. Edison do you want to go next sure okay that sounds cool Helen um, mine is a little bit of a detour from that Okay. <laughs> um, my film is 1998's The Man in the Iron Mask mm, <laughs> starring Leo DiCaprio as the cruel king King Louis XIV of France and also as his secret twin brother who's being kept imprisoned and hidden oh. behind a literal iron mask. I've never seen this movie. Oh, Helen. <laughs> well, Other than the little clips you sent us. <laughs> Listen, I hadn't I have not seen this since it came out. Yeah. So when you were sending us the clips it was hilarious because I've always been curious if this holds up. Nope. Because, I, <laughs> because during Leo Mania, like I loved watching this. Yeah, me too. I remember when this came out. This came out a year after Titanic, right? Leo was oh. literally the biggest thing on the entire planet. He's like God to every mm. teenage girl that exists on Earth and in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I remember seeing this then too. And it is a whole mood. This film is quite something. The basic like premise, basically, what I found, I did a little digging after because I was like, this is like King Louis the Fourteenth obviously existed in real life. Mm. So like, what is there any truth to this mm. whatsoever? And the Three Musketeers plus D'Artagnan are very heavily featured characters in this, mm-hmm. right? And they're historical characters as well. And so I was like, okay. And turns out that there is actually like historical figure that was the man in the iron mask the prisoner in the iron mask and there Mm. is actually like suspicion and conspiracy theory that it was either the older brother of king louis the 14th or a twin or something so that was interesting anyway whatever the film is just (laughs) does not earn any of that okay this film is completely ludicrous it's so uneven 
The performances mm. are really uneven. Like Leo as the one in the Iron Mask when he gets released is actually really good. Okay. He's so pretty, but he's <laughs> yeah. also like earnest and and good and he mm. plays that really well, but when he's playing the like cruel king, <laughs> it's just camp. I sent you the video of the, the hair, hair flip. flip. Yeah. Yeah. When he goes Jesuits and then flips his hair like share. <laughs> like it's too much. Yeah. And then the three musketeers are all just pure comedy like John Malkovich, right? Mm-hmm. Gerard Depardieu playing like a French clown. Also, oh. obviously, like this is in French. He's the only French person in the film. Right. Uh, <laughs> they all have totally different. Some are, are English. Some are, you know, Classic. Leo DiCaprio. Um, there's no women. There is one woman, but all she she just like, oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I will say, Sinclair, you would at the very least love the opening voiceover narration from Jeremy Irons. Oh mm. my gosh. You love his voice. I love Jeremy Irons so yeah. much. And this is about masks too in the sense that obviously it's the man in the iron mask but it's about what is the power of a mask, mm. right? Ma- this mask is used to basically take away the power that this person actually mm. holds, right? A lot of the time we see like a superhero puts or a supervillain puts on their mask to give them their power. Right. This yeah. is the complete opposite of that. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but that's about, about the most interesting thing in this movie. Okay. Not really worth a rewatch, but it was okay for like a campy hour and a half. Mm. I think it's, I loved seeing those clips though. Yeah, yeah, yeah It was totally. worth it for me to get those clips from you. I know. I guess that's fair. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All what right, did you Sinclair. pick, Sinclair? Uh, okay. Well, I watched a movie called The Mask of the Red Death Ooh. from 1964 directed by Roger Corman, starring Vincent Price. Uh-huh. Oh. So this is based off of a favorite Edgar Allan Poe story of mine of the same name. And it's a story about a prince called Prince Prospero, who is a huge dick. And his town... is his want. Yeah, he's a huge <laughs> dick. And his townspeople are being plagued by the Red Death, mm-hmm. which is an illness that is kind of like a fever. It has, it's very painful. It causes all these red spots and a very dramatic, painful death. Mm. And Prospero, being the dick that he is, doesn't do anything to help the townspeople. Instead, he invites all of his rich dick friends over for a masquerade ball. rich dick friend (laughs) and they just decide that they are all going to party and be lavish while everyone else is dying and yeah you know they just throw a kiki and they don't give a fuck so (laughs) uh roger corman is a director that i've been trying to go through his Mm. filmography because i loved the original little shop of horrors i talked Mm. about that on the podcast Mm -hmm. when we did in focus jack nicholson and he also did a bunch of films based on Edgar Allan Poe stories that star Vincent Price. And this collection of, of films are called the Roger Corman Poe Cycle. And I love mm. Edgar Allan Poe and I love Vincent Price. So for me, that was a very good combo. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. So because The Mask of the Red Death is a short story, in order to make it a feature length film, there has to be some creative liberties just yeah. to make it longer. <laughs> So there's some creative liberties in this that I found really interesting. Like one was they added this story of Prince Prospero being a Satanist. Oh, okay. So he's not just a dick anymore. He just actually becomes a Satan worshiper. <laughs> and they also Does made he bring him... on the plague? 
the the Red Death. Yes. So mm. it, it does start in the beginning of the film as the the Red Death almost going to the the townspeople to teach him a lesson. Uh-huh. Okay. Whereas with the Edgar Allan Poe story, the Red Death, it's the plague. It, yeah. It's mm. you know Edgar Allan Poe wrote a lot of his stories during the plague, so mm. it was very much you know something that happens like with COVID or whatnot. Right. Where this seemed more like vengeance. So basically, he's a Satanist in this film. He is very cynical about God and hope, and he's aligned himself with Satan. And he thinks that, you know, swearing this oath to Satan, he could evade death. And Mm. he believes that anyone who has faith and hope is foolish and that evil is the way to go. Anyway, so a masquerade ball happens and a figure wearing a red cloak comes in, has a mask on. And Prospero feels aligned with him at first because he thinks that it's someone that Satan has Mm -hmm. sent. So a comrade, if you will. But really the Red Death is there to claim Prospero and everyone at the party. Oh, wow. And the messaging in this film is really like, no, and in, in the short story is that no matter what your ranking is in the world and whatever riches you have, you can't evade death. Like death still comes for you. Basically, the... People at the masquerade ball, they start to do this dance called the Dance of the Macabre or the Dance of Death. And historically, it represented no matter one station in life, the Dance Macabre unites us all. So we all die. And that is what actually unites us all. Prince Prospero says to the figure in in the red cloak, I want to remove your mask. I want to Mm. see, see who you are. And then when... Vincent Price removes the mask. It's Vincent Price behind the mask. Ooh. And he realizes that he himself has seen his own death. Like mm. he is death now. He's going to die. And then the man in red says, why should you be afraid to die? Your soul has been dead for a long, long time. And I was like, mm, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> Sounds like vengeance to me. Yeah, mm. vengeance. So yeah, these Roger Corman movies are really fun. They're very gothic, but also somehow very colorful. They're campy. Vincent Price is just such a legend. Mm. He's so grand mm-hmm. and he has such a distinctive haunting voice. And yeah, combined with these Edgar Allan Poe stories and Roger Corman, it's just like a, a really great recipe for fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to watching all these these Poe stories. And I also just love the idea of a masquerade ball, historically. Mm, well, there was one yeah. in The Man in the Iron Mask, too. Yes, there's <laughs> always, and it's, you know, it's always associated with decadence and gluttony and lust. And people can, you know, wear these masks and just be very, like, hedonistic. Yeah. And still have some sort of anonymity. Mm. So this, this was a lot of fun. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. All right, so as promised at the beginning of the episode, now it's time for us to have some fun and announce the terrible, horrible, absolutely regrettable films that we've picked for each other for next week's Patreon episode. Sinclair, you go first. Which hellish enterprise have you selected for Helen? Okay, so oh, no, for, I'm nervous. for Helen, um, Helen, oh. you are going to be watching Troll 2. Oh, and I picked this one specifically for you because your significant other, Justin, was asking me about this movie. (laughs) He's going to be so excited. And I thought that he could maybe join you on this bad movie adventure. 
So Troll 2 is from 1990. And it is a... It's a cult movie. Mm -hmm. And it is notoriously awful. Mm. And (laughs) it is like no other. And it's definitely going to be an experience for you. I'm actually really looking forward to this. I have been meaning to watch this. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So I'm not actually upset about that yeah i was so well, well, but you also have re- let's revisit that conversation <laughs> okay, next fair. week that is fair i was <laughs> thank, thank you for that uh bad movie suggestion okay edison you will be watching 2002's pinocchio by oh. roberto benini i have never seen that <laughs> i haven't either it has zero percent on rotten tomatoes <laughs> Wow, can't wait. Yeah. So this actually came out uh, five years after La Vita e Bella, where Roberto Benigni won Best Actor. He won uh, Best Foreign Film, Best Music. It was a huge hit at the Oscars. Yes. Now, Pinocchio was a big hit at the Razzies. Yes. And I also picked this because of your excitement for the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio story. If it ever comes out. To come out. <laughs> if it ever comes out. Yeah. yeah. So I'm really looking forward to hearing how bad this is. Wow, great. Can't wait to watch that. That's going to be really fun. <laughs> and you'll note my nose just grew. Yeah. Three times. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, my pick for you, oh, Sinclair, no. <laughs> this is a straight-up 90s disaster. A remake of the 1953 Marilyn Brando film, The Wild One, that's starring the other... Is it o- Cool as Ice? I've seen this and talked about this on the podcast. <laughs> that's starring the other one-hit wonder white rapper that wasn't Mark Wahlberg. Yes, yeah. I did a whole segment on this movie. Fuck me, did I not say that to you in the car on the way over here? Yeah, but like, how do you not remember me talking about Cool as Ice? I don't remember I anything that I talked about. I you guys about. with it. I do remember this. this remember, is, yeah. it was it was musical artists in movies, and you guys thought I was going to pick some like Oscar-winning something, and I was yeah. just like, Cool as Ice. Yeah. All right. Listen. My pick for you, Sinclair, is a straight-up 90s disaster. (laughs) This is one that I am not sure whether you've ever seen before or not. It is 1997's Spawn. I've seen Spawn. Oh, for fuck's sake, Sinclair. (laughs) You've seen everything. This is really hard. All right, Sinclair. Oh, my God. Here we go. My pick for you is a straight-up 90s disaster. (laughs) A hybrid disaster, even. This film is the worst rated film of a very famous movie star's entire career. Only at 4% on Rotten Tomatoes. This is from 1992. It is the Roger Rabbit knockoff, Cool World, starring Brad Pitt. I just watched this. We just talked about this. What? When? I just watched Cool World. We were discussing doing a Brad Pitt in focus. And I Uh. said, his biggest flop is Cool World. I just watched it. These are these are conversations we've had. <laughs> okay, try again. All right, Sinclair. Yeah. I have chosen for you a film that is a straight up 80s disaster. <laughs> We're just going to jump back a decade yeah. and try then. This is one of notoriously the worst movie musicals ever. Okay. Chances are hopefully the shit you have not seen this one. It is Despite starring someone very much beloved to all of us, Robin Williams, this is Popeye from 1980. Of course I've seen Popeye. The musical? Popeye, yes, with Shelley Duvall. Okay, Sinclair. This time I've picked for you an absolute disaster right from the aughts. 
Okay. <laughs> this is a romantic comedy that just never, ever should have happened, I am sure. It is crass, 6% on Rotten Tomatoes, absolutely terrible, and starring someone that's so hot. This film is called The Hottie and the Naughty. I have not seen The Hottie and the Naughty. <laughs> yeah. Um. Success. <laughs> Starring this, Paris this Hilton. terrible. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I could definitely say I did not watch The Hottie and the Naughty. Wow. <laughs> My goodness. What a, what a journey what that was. What an odyssey. Okay, well, you enjoy <laughs> that. <laughs> uh, okay, well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie To Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is talkmovietomepodcast.com, and you can become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash talkmovietome. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs>